we are uh, beginning a, a new, a brief series leading up to Christmas, uh, an Advent series. We normally think of Advent as the season leading up to Christmas. In reality, Advent is actually the last part of the original church calendar. The Advent, which means uh, arrival or return, is actually a reference to Jesus' return at the end of the age. Uh, but because obviously the end of the church year finishes a week before the start of the new church year, over time it's become uh, a time when we remember the coming of Christ as King and Bird. So as we, as we think of Christ coming into the world, this thing has been not only as the baby born of Bethlehem, but also as uh, the Son of Man, the Lord uh, who will return uh, to renew all things. So in these three weeks leading up to Christmas, we'll be putting together a portrait of Jesus as priest, prophet and king. And each of these could actually be a whole series in themselves because these themes run all the way through the entire scripture from beginning to end. Uh, They're woven through every aspect of the Bible story. Underneath each of these headings is everything that we need to know about Jesus, everything that we need to believe in order to have life in him. Now this threefold office of priest, prophet and king was God's original design for humanity. We'll see that each of these messages that each one is what Adam was created for. Yet, in each one, Adam failed. And within the whole human race. We'll see now, uh, as the storyline of the Bible unfolds, as it uh, focuses in on Abraham and Abraham's children, Israel, and it points forward in shadows and types and revelations, that it leads us towards the day when the last Adam, Jesus, will stand on the earth. Every point that Adam failed, Jesus succeeds. He succeeds as the great high priest. He succeeds as the Word made flesh and as the King, the Lord of all creation. So it's as we are in Him through faith that we are part of a new humanity. We are being restored back to our creation design as we look forward to that new heavens and new earth. So as we build this portrait of Jesus, in a way we'll also be building a portrait of ourselves. We'll, we'll get a glimpse into the Father's ultimate plan for his children. Because in every point that Jesus is priest, prophet and king, he does that as a man, as a human being. One who wears our skin, who's, who carries our blood in his veins, and he does it on our behalf so that everything that he is, we too shall be. Romans 8.29 says, Those who be foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
We're approaching what we, what we call Christmas, but probably it should really be called the Festival of the Incarnation. A little bit harder to get tongue around, I guess. It's a celebration of the fact that not only did God come down to us in Jesus, but he came down to us in order to lift us up out of the darkness of our death and into the brightness and the light of his presence and his kingdom. The significance of Jesus' threefold role is also summed up in this statement. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, as priest, he is the way into the presence of the Holy Father. As prophet, he is the truth of the Father spoken to us. And as the King, he brings us into the eternal life of his Father's kingdom. So that's why uh, we have it in that order, priest, prophet, king. Uh, I noticed something interesting that uh, if you uh, speak to a Catholic, they don't speak about Jesus as priest, prophet, king. If you speak to a Protestant, they'll speak about Jesus as prophet, priest and king which probably just indicates the difference between uh, the Roman Catholic Church that has more emphasis on the priestly aspect uh, in their worship and the Protestants who have more emphasis on the word, the preaching aspect of their worship. Uh, but I'll go on with this order because it, it matches I am the way, the truth and the life. So let's, let's look at Jesus, our gratified priest. Well, as, as I mentioned, Adam was the first priest, and the Garden of Eden was the very first temple, tabernacle. The garden was marked out, it was separated from the rest of creation, and it was the place in which the Lord walked with humanity. And it was placed in the garden in order to work it and keep it. Now, they're not gardening terms. They're terms that were used later to refer to the priests in the tabernacle. They were to go about the service of enabling the people to worship God. That was the work that they did. And they were to guard it, to keep it, to ensure that nothing unholy or unclean came in to the Father. Uh, from Eden, there flowed four rivers that went out and watered the whole earth. And it was from Eden that the man and woman were told to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth, but to take Eden with them so that the, the order and the delight and the beauty of the garden and more importantly the holiness of God's presence would one day fill not just that little corner of creation but the whole world. The whole world is to become a holy place, a temple, so that there will no longer be need for this walled sanctuary garden because every square inch will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. Now, Ezekiel 28 gives us some more insight into Adam as a priest. Now, this is the word of prophecy that was spoken by Ezekiel against the king of Tyre. 
higher than a city-state in the north uh, in modern-day Lebanon. Uh, at the moment, now it's on a peninsula, but in those days it was an island, a city-state on an island, so it kind of had that picture of being a sanctuary away from the land. So all that's directed towards its king, the passage uses images of Eden, and it likens the king of Tyre to Adam in describing his fall from glory to shame. Let's hear what it says. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the secret of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, Pophad, and Diamond, Beryl, Onyx, and Jasper, Sapphire, Emerald, and Carbon, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian of cherub. I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God, in the midst of the stone of fire and walk. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created, till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian of cherub, from the midst of the stone of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted, you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples, I will hold of you. You have become, you have come to a dreadful end, and shall be no more forever. You see the images there of Adam and of Eden. In verse 13, these stones mentioned uh, correspond to the stone that the high priest would wear on his breastplate as he ministered in the tabernacle. For the high priest, the stone represented the twelve tribes of Israel. There were twelve, but uh, here there's only nine. But uh, this is the only other place in the Bible where this combination of stones appears. The other place is in Exodus with the high priest. Well, Adam didn't literally wear priest's clothes in Eden. This is pointing to his priestly status. Then in verse 14, he is called an anointed cherub. The role of cherub is to be a guard. As we saw, Adam was to guard the garden. And when he failed to do so by allowing the serpent in, he was cast out and he was replaced by those two cherubs with fiery swords who guarded the entrance to the garden. So God's design for Adam was his design for humanity. All who came from him, beginning with Eve and all of their children. We are made to be priests, to be 
mediators of God's holy presence to all creation and to every creature and to one another. We're supposed to look at one another and see that reflection of the glory of God, to see in one another the image of the invisible God. However, along with Adam, our hearts have become proud. We've exchanged the wisdom and truth of God for a lie. When Adam and Eve ate from the tree, we were like with them. When they were expelled from the garden, we were expelled with them. And along with them, the way back into the sanctuary, into the holy presence of God has been blocked. Anyone who attempts to to go back in, to return off their own back by their own property will come under that fiery judgment of the Holy God. So what we need now is a new priest, one that will replace Adam who will succeed where he failed. Because we're designed to be priests, or we could say we are created for worship, our life now outside the garden, away from God's holy presence, displays a yearning of the human heart to be reunited with the holy. That's why, with almost no exception, every human culture has religion. And within these religions, there's, there's almost always some kind of priesthood. Priests, prophets, uh, priestesses, gurus, shamans, witch doctors, sages, spiritual guides, whatever their labels might be, they demonstrate the fact that as part of our irresistible urge to worship, we also have this inbuilt instinct that we need someone more qualified than ourselves to help us worship. In fact, to perform our worship on our behalf. We can see this religious instinct and desire for priests come out in what we might think are non-religious ways. Atheists are very religious. They hold very strongly to their views about God and his non-existence. They have very strong views about the origin of the world and the nature of humanity. They have as their scriptures, scientific textbooks and philosophy books. And their priests are the experts and the scholars and the scientists who write these ideas and who teach them and preach them. And over the last century or so, there's been a steady decline in numbers of those in, in the West, at least, who adhere to organised religion. Although worldwide, there's actually a higher proportion of religious adherence than there has been before. But at the same time, coinciding with this decline in uh, professed religious adherence, there's also been the development of modern technology and there's been another movement that's happened in parallel, the huge growth of the entertainment industry. This has really just become another expression of the religious human heart in the modern world. 
Whereas in generations past, families and communities would gather and they would sing the song of their lives and their experiences and their worship to whatever gods that they worship. We now have priests and priestesses who vicariously sing our songs on our behalf. All we need to do now is get a subscription to iTunes or Spotify, put in our earbuds, and let them tell us what our heart's affections should be set on. Then, at the end of the day, we can sit down in front of the screen and we can log into Netflix and stand and watch another set of priests and priestesses act out lives and experiences and so we can vicariously live through them without even leaving our couch. We can choose to watch lives of glamour and glory and success and imagine what we would like to be or we might watch stories that portray justice and vengeance and acts of heroism because that minimises for a few moments our dissatisfaction with this world which is full of injustice. Or we might choose to watch reality TV in which people's messy and embarrassing lives are put on display so that we can feel better about ourselves because we're not like them. And then you log into music or movies or TV and um, I listen to as much music and watch as much TV as anyone else, I'm not saying great TVs. But if you're not into that, well, there's another avenue for worship. You can just simply follow the great religion of sport. We see men and women representing their country, representing us, or their club members, or their fans. They perform great acts of strength and skill before crowds of tens of thousands of adoring worshippers. It's been observed that before the 20th century, most towns and cities uh, were dominated by cathedrals and churches. It was always the tallest building in the town. Now, cityscapes are dominated by two types of other temples. We have the skyscrapers dedicated to money and wealth and we have the sports payments. We simply need to ask of our culture what activities draw the biggest crowds and what people receive the highest salaries to know what our religion is and what and who our priests and priestesses are. So however it is expressed, it's all our working of the human heart that has been created to worship and which desires some kind of high priest because we know we've been cast out of the garden, we've failed in our priestly mandate. We'll only be satisfied once our true high priest has come and brought us back to our home, the presence of God. All our religions, all of our priests, sacred or secular, they're just simply imitations or parodies of that original design. 
Now just read the Old Testament and you'll see that. All the, the idolatry that's there is dotted with this uh, human invention to try and fill that, that gap, that yearning. But it's also dotted with the shadows and the promises of that true high priest who God had sent. We see significant characters in the Old Testament doing very priestly things by building altars, offering sacrifices, beginning with Abel, who offered a lamb in faith and his offering was accepted by God. Noah, Noah offered a sacrifice of clean animals after the judgment of the flood and it rose as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they all had encounters with the Lord and they respond to their experience of his presence by pitching a tent, literally a tabernacle, building an altar and calling on the name of the Lord. And something you see in Genesis is they keep returning to this place in the land called Bethel, which means house of God. Good name for a church, I think. So these, these were just merely expressions of this yearning, this empty action of an empty heart that we see in all the religions around us. They were actually real encounters with the true and living God. Their actions were expressions of the reality that they had for a moment been ushered into the presence of God. We saw that last week. In Exodus 24, when Moses and Aaron and the elders of Israel came face to face with God and ate and drank. They weren't inventions of the human heart, but they were expressions of something that God gave them and signs of what He did. In Abraham's encounter with Melchizedek, we see a picture of this great high priest of come. Melchizedek, King of Salem, this is in Genesis 14, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. The bread and wine here are the, the cup of the meal that we saw last week. And Abram's giving of a tenth of all he had was an act of allegiance. But since Melchizedek was a priest of God, he was acting as this mediator between Abraham and God. So Abraham's allegiance wasn't to Melchizedek, it was to God through Melchizedek. And God expressed the fellowship that he had towards Abraham through the bread and wine, which worked from Melchizedek, though from God, through him. Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us a bit more about Melchizedek. Hebrews chapter 7. This Melchizedek, king of Salem, the priest of the, of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham, a portion of him, part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest 
forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. The Levitical priesthood were the clearest picture to the Israelites of the great high priests to come. The high priest wore on the top of his robes the ephod, an apron which was fastened on the shoulders by two sardonic stones, and each of these stones was engraved with six of the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. They were called stones of remembrance. Then his breastplate, as we mentioned, had twelve precious stones, each of a different type, each representing one of the tribes. So, as the high priest went about his service in the tabernacle, he symbolically bore on his shoulders and on his heart all the people of Israel. We see in Exodus 28, So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breast piece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. On his head, tied around his turban, was a gold plate or crown with the words engraved on it, Holy to the Lord. Exodus 28 tells us, It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. Then on the day of atonement, the high priest would not wear the ephod or the breastpiece or the outer gown or the crown but only the white linen, the gown and the turban with a linen sash around his waist. Before dressing his way, he would have washed his body five times and his feet ten times. This white linen was symbolic of the, the purity that was required of him as he was the one who would carry the blood of the sacrifice into the most holy place and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. By doing so, he would make atonement both for the people, but also it was a rededication, a sanctifying of this most holy place so that it would remain a suitable dwelling place for God's presence so that he may continue to dwell among his people. And we heard in our reading uh, this morning, we, we heard that about the high priest going into the temple, but we also heard that uh, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper but deal only with food and drink and various washing regulations of the body imposed until the time of Reformation. There's a diagram of the tabernacle. The first section was the front part of the temple, the holy place, which was separated from the most holy place by a thick curtain. Now, we 
Hebrews says that this front section is symbolic of the present age. Remember, this was written before the Jerusalem temple was destroyed. So the present age was the present age for the writer and the readers of Hebrews. It was the old age, the age that had come to an end at the time of what he calls the time of Reformation, when the temple was destroyed and the Jews could no longer come to God with their sacrifices. They could only come to him through faith in Jesus' sacrifice. Now most of you will be familiar with the story around each Christmas of three kings who came to visit the child Jesus with their gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. Now firstly, we don't actually know how many there were, we're not told, except that there were more than one, but three gifts. Secondly, they weren't kings, they were magi, the word from which we get our word magician. They were men who practiced magic arts, astrology, divination, occultic rituals. They were most likely priestly advisors, probably from Persia in modern day Iraq or Iran. They were some of these priests that the human heart has attached itself to, thinking that somehow they could bring them into the presence of God through their magic, their divination. These magi bring these three gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now the popular Christmas carol gives symbolic significance to these gifts, gold for his kingship, frankincense for his deity, and myrrh for his death and burial. But Matthew doesn't mention any of those things in his gospel. He just says they gave him these Matthew's gospel does emphasize the kingship of Jesus. But Matthew also highlights that Jesus' birth was the fulfillment of a prophecy that a virgin will conceive and bear a son who would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Matthew makes a point of translating this word Emmanuel. Even though this gospel is written most likely for Jewish Christians who would have known what Emmanuel means, they, they didn't need to have it translated or explained. So it's like he's emphasising the fact that this child born in the line of David will also be the one who will be the very presence of God walking among us again. That he will be the one who will do away with the need for the temple. He would bring the reformation that Hebrews 9 spoke of. So I think these three gifts indicate not just a royal status. They were commonly given to royal children uh, in the ancient world, but they also point to his priestly status. Gold was used extensively in all of the temple's furnishings. It was used for all of the fittings on the high priest's garments. And gold thread was woven through all of his clothing and the ephod. The crown on his head was made of pure gold. 
Though God also speaks of a priestly space. Frankincense was the key ingredient in the spice incense that was used in the temple. It was sprinkled on many of the burnt offerings. And myrrh, which was a resin that was used extensively as a, uh, uh, a resin for embalming bodies all around the, the Roman Empire in the times, it was also a key ingredient in the anointing oil that was used to consecrate the tabernacle and everything in it. And Aaron and his sons and all the priests were anointed with an anointing oil of which the base was known. But from his birth, Jesus is marked out as a royal priest, the great high priest who was promised. And even the idolatrous magicians and the priests of other nations are drawn to come and to fall down and worship him. Then at the other end of Jesus' life, we see him in the upper room, eating the Passover with his disciples and transforming it into what we now know as communion, a meal of bread and wine. These twelve men, representing the twelve tribes of Israel, all sons of Abraham, are re-experiencing what Abraham had when he was given bread and wine by Melchizedek as a confirmation of God's covenant. The bread representing the flesh of the sacrifice that was shared by the covenant partners, and the wine representing the blood that was shared that was sprinkled on them which brought them together in this unbreakable form. Now during this time, he spoke to his disciples about how he was about to go from this world back to the Father. He said to them, uh, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. And a bit later, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. He's describing his priestly ministry. His way back to the Father was to be by the cross where he bore the wrath of God and gave himself up to be a pleasing sacrifice for the Father for our sins. It was by the resurrection in which the Father demonstrated his pleasure in Jesus' offering by raising him forever from the grave and declaring him to be the Son of God in power and then in his ascension in which Jesus, now a great high priest, stepped right into the most holy place, the throne room of the Father. And he stands before the throne and he bears in his flesh the scars of his sacrifice an eternal testimony and assurance that Christ of our salvation could be paid. Jesus continues to be clothed in our human flesh. He, he will never discard us. He will never cease to be our great high priest. And so we have to guarantee that we are as secure in the Father's love as Jesus is, as long as he is there representing us. Because he is in us and we are in him, 
We are one with Him, just as He is one with the Father. Now I said at the start that this portrait of Jesus is also a portrait of us. We saw Adam was the first priest, a model for humanity, both in his creational design, but also in his failure and his fullness. Well, Jesus, the last Adam, has reversed the fall and the failure of the first Adam. Jesus, the great high priest, is not only a priest to us, bringing us back into the garden, making obsolete the cherubim at the gates, we want to block that way back in. But he also restores to us our priestly role. Revelation 1, verse 5 to 6 says, From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sin by his blood, that's him being priest for us and has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This song is sung by the 24 elders around the throne of God, representative of all God's people, 12 from the Old Testament, 12 from the New Testament. But what happens after this song is remarkable. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open the seals for your slain, and by your blood you have ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth, for that was in the first reading. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying in a loud voice, Word is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. This is a picture of the restored humanity in the 24 elders now leading toward the angelic beings in worship of God. Angels who stand before the presence of God and who see his face up until this point have been mediators of God's presence to human beings. Now they are being led in worship by human beings. You know what that says? We now stand closer to the face of God than angels. But wait, there's more. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb in blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. This is humanity not just leading the angels in worship, but leading every creature. Birds, cattle, dogs, earthworms, fish, all of creation is bidding and singing to the praise and glory of God and to the Lamb as they are being led by us, the kingdom of priests. And the knowledge of the glory of God once again fills the earth as the waters cover the sea. This is a glorious future 
the new heavens and the new earth. But it's, it's a future that we are living in now, as we live in the sure hope of Jesus appearing, of the resurrection of our bodies and the renewal of all things. Our worship now, both in song, as we gather, and in the offering of our lives as living sacrifices, are a foretaste that day. As we go out and we declare his praises, we are we're not merely giving people the option of getting a ticket to heaven when they die. We are performing a priestly ministry. We are heralds of the good news that the way into the holy presence of God has been opened up in Jesus. That doesn't inspire you to go out and tell someone the gospel. Nothing else to do. Let's pray. Father, what a wonderful thing to hear that we stand before your face, that there is nothing between us, nothing to cause us shame or fear or doubt, that there is no darkness, that there is no uncertainty. We know we are your children. We know you have brought us back to that place where we have unhindered access to your love and your grace and your goodness. Father, give us a vision of Jesus, our great high priest, who has passed through this earth as one of us and has passed through the heavens and has given us that clear, unfettered access to you. We ask, Father, that we might live out the reality of your presence with us. And not just as we gather here to see and worship, but as we go out into the world and live as your holy kingdom of priests. We pray this in